Another great Sunday to be together. Uh, you can open your Bible today to 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, today we're picking up where we left off last week. And if you were with us last week, then uh, maybe you've been thinking about that sermon all this week. I know that for me, um, it was definitely upon my heart. I know that some of you have shared with me that uh, last week's sermon has just really um, impacted your week as you've been thinking about those truths that were shared. And so, you know, last Sunday, whether you were here or you were not here, it was, um, it was one of those holiness messages, you know what I mean, where uh, the Lord uses messages like that to sanctify his church. That we've been using that word a lot lately, sanctify, sanctification. It's where day by day, Jesus is making us look more and more like him. And that's the goal always. The goal is as we would uh, receive the word of God and the spirit of God, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. But that's a continual process, which is why we're gathered here at church again this morning. Amen? We've come again this Sunday to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus. We've come again to find breakthrough with that particular sin that the Lord has been convicting you of. And you're, you're here because you want to be reminded of the gospel and you want to reckon yourself dead to that sin and alive to God. And today, by his grace, we stand firm in the victory of Jesus as we endeavor day by day to live faithful and fruitful lives for him. And so I'm here today, and I believe that you're here today to be reminded of the gospel. So let me, let me do that again this morning, this Sunday. Let me even ask you that perhaps you've come in this Sunday through the heat of the battle. Um, you would say that it's been a challenging week for you. Maybe unusually difficult. And it's not uncommon for the enemy to push back on us when we begin to pursue holiness in our lives. Um, maybe you left last Sunday believing, I do not have to sin anymore. Who left last Sunday thinking that? That's right, I hope you did. <laughs> you left last Sunday believing, I do not have to sin anymore. But this week you stumbled again. And what you wanted to do, you did not do. And what you didn't want to do, you ended up doing well, friend, I have to ask you a question. Did you go to Jesus, your advocate, the righteous one? And, and did you go to Jesus? Let me ask you, when you went to him, did he condemn you? No. Perhaps your heart condemned you this week. I, most certainly the devil has tried to condemn you this week, but coming to Jesus, the advocate, the righteous one, if we come to him, he will not condemn us, and neither do we, as fellow stumbling saints, condemn anyone who's coming in today from the heat of the battle, knowing that last week was hard. We come together again, remembering that in Jesus, it's always been about standing in his righteousness. It's always been about being under the fountain of his grace and of his love. And, and we know this truth from the book of Romans, that where sin flows, grace flows even more. 
And so God, let me pray right now. God, would you saturate this place and these people with your grace? Lord, would this be an environment where you would lavish it upon us, Jesus, showing us how much you love us and all that you've given to us. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would instruct us more today, sanctify us a little bit more today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So where sin flows, grace flows even more. But if that's the case, should we continue in sin so that grace can flow? Certainly not, right? We are those who have died to sin, therefore how can we live any longer in it? Grace is given so that our practice will match with our position, that how we behave would be who we really are in Christ. Uh, I was talking to Rob this week, he, he gave this idea, is that grace is given so that the gap will close between what we believe and how we behave. I really love that. Closing the gap between what we believe and how we behave. Grace is lavished upon us so that we could look more like Jesus, who is holy and righteous, and that is a beautiful thing. Now it seems then, as we're talking about God's grace this morning, there seems to be a proper way to view God's grace. And theologians have used these terms uh, in, in this discussion around what, what really is grace. It's the idea of cheap grace and costly grace. Maybe you've heard of this before. Cheap grace uses and abuses God's grace. It's the attitude that, you know, I, I can keep on sinning because God's just going to keep on forgiving me. Costly grace recognizes how Jesus suffered and died for us and, and knows how much it cost him to forgive us of our sins. And so it's the attitude that you're saying, I don't want to keep on sinning because I know that God has forgiven me, and I know the cost that it was, the high cost, so that I could have faithful fellowship with my God. I don't want to keep on sinning. That's costly grace. And so look, last week was last week, and God's grace covers over our past, present, and future. And so Last week was last week, and so whether you had success or failure in your fight against sin, we now come together again today to stand in Jesus' victory, to have our feet firmly planted, level at the cross, understanding that together we are all Jesus' blood-bought bride. Amen? Amen. We are here today to be his church and the church is a place to get your feet washed from walking in the world. The church is the place to get your wounds bandaged from the warring of the flesh. This is the camp where you come and you armor yourself up so that you can stand and resist the devil. It is the place where we come each week to get a fresh filling of the spirit as we continue on in sojourning toward heaven which is eternity up ahead for us. Amen? I felt very led to give that exhortation right at the beginning of the message because I would hate for anyone who was here last week 
to have come this week to think, I can't do it. I can't continue on. I just, again and again and again, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. So come again today and say, oh, what a wretched person that I am. Who will deliver me from this? You guys know the answer, right? It's Jesus. We've come to bring the real us to the real Jesus. I haven't said those words in a little while. Bring the real you to the real Jesus today, and God will meet you this morning. So, verse 7, I feel like I should pray again. Lord Jesus, (laughs) do that work in us. Lavish your grace upon this church, Jesus, that we stand in your victory. We fight from victory. The battle's been won. We're not fighting for it. We stand in you. We stand in your righteousness. Thank you for what you've done, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4, this is what we read. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory in dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So beginning again at verse 7, this is what we read. The end of all things is at hand. And Peter really did have a heavenly mindset, and this statement here proves it. Uh, Peter believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. Because Jesus promised his disciples that he would come at the end of the age. The only thing is this, is that Jesus didn't exactly say when that would be. He said that he would be coming soon and that we needed to be ready. Jesus said he's coming back. That's a promise. That is a guarantee. He said it will be soon, so be ready. So Peter believed, as a disciple of Christ, that the second coming of Jesus could have happened in his lifetime. He was of the mindset that he was of the last generation living in the last days. Now listen, does that make Peter wrong for thinking that? For thinking that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime? No. (laughs) Not at all. In fact, I believe it's proper for all generations to think this way, that Jesus could come back in our lifetime. He didn't tell us exactly when it would be that he would come. He just said it would be soon so as to give us expectation and urgency of his return. And so the question is, are we living in the last days? Is Jesus coming again soon? Could he very well return today? Yes. Yes. That statement 
the end of all things is at hand. It was true nearly 2,000 years ago when Peter first wrote that, but is just as true in this generation. We very well could be the last generation before the end of all things comes. So the end of all things at hand. That's, that's an interesting statement. And it's a statement that perhaps is either frightening to you or it's comforting to you. The end of all things is at hand. And, and whether you see that as a frightening statement or as a comforting statement, it's contingent on how you are living today. You see, if you're living for God's will, then the end of all things being at hand is comforting because it means that you will reach the end of the goal. It means that you will come to the end of the process of God working out his salvation in you and that when he appears, you will love his appearing because he will bring all that you have been anticipating and waiting for and that is his eternal kingdom. However, if you're living for your own will, the end of all things might actually be a terror. Or at the very least, you're gonna be apathetic about it. The intent of what is called the imminent return of Jesus, that it could happen at any moment, it is meant to understand that because Jesus is coming to judge both the living and the dead, it will cause you to say, I need to get right with God now. But many say something along these lines. Yeah, right. You know, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. And look, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Like, people have been saying for, for centuries that Jesus was coming back. And look, he still hasn't come back yet. So he's not coming back anytime soon. Enough, all right, preacher, enough of that end time stuff now. We're a modern people now. <laughs> Right. Put your hand out in front of you. Now, is your hand out in front of you, is that far from you or is that close to you? I'd say it's pretty close. So when it says, the end of all things is at hand, it's pretty close. Amen? Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you're living for God's will, you're going to anticipate his coming. If you're living for your own will, you're probably going to be found like sometimes I find my kids. You know when my kids are doing something in their room and they know they shouldn't be doing it and dad walks in and I say, what are you doing? Oh, nothing, dad. <laughs> nothing doesn't change the fact that I love them and they're still my children and they're still in my house. But when Jesus comes, how do we want to be found at his appearing? Remember in 1 John it says that anyone who thus has this hope in him that he could come back at any moment, they will purify themselves. And so just as he is pure, we will purify ourselves. So if Jesus could come back at any moment, what does this mean practically for how we live our lives today? Well, Peter says how in verse seven, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. 
See, again, that second coming of Jesus, I would say it's one of the most sanctifying truths in the Bible. How will we be found at his appearing? We were talking about this at the young adults group this last week. I asked the question, if you knew, if you had the knowledge that Jesus was going to come back tonight at 10 p.m., how would you live out the rest of your Sunday? It's a great question to ask ourselves. Every single day that we wake up, that would be a very purifying question to ask yourself. If Jesus came back at the end of today, how, I, how would I live today? And, and if we live that way, we will be living in such a way that Peter says we will be self-controlled and we will be sober-minded. Paul wrote about this time, the end times, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, that, that the people who will be living in the end times will experience this. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Church, does that sound anything like the times that we are living in today? Are we sober-minded about the times that we are living in? In these times of difficulty, we need to think like Jesus, and we need to think about Jesus. As Peter said earlier in this book, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare for action. And understand this, that sin flows from self. A great definition for sin is really selfishness. And did you notice how Peter, uh, Paul rather, began that list of sins that he said would uh, be marked during the last days? He said that the first one is that people will be lovers of self. Everything else on that list flows out from that statement. People will be lovers of self. You could say people will be lovers of self and not lovers of God. The difference is doing God's will or doing your own will. And Jesus said, deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, you might be thinking here this morning, man, this sounds like a whole lot more put off. <laughs> I, I thought we were going to be talking today about the things that we're to put on. Yes, we're, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But there is always more for us Christians for us to put off. But listen, if you put these on, if you put on self-control and you put on sober thinking, if you're living in such a way that is self-controlled and sober-minded, then the result of that is there's going to be less sin in your life, which means that there's gonna be less that you'll need to put off and you're gonna live a more peaceful and joyful life. So if you put on by the ability of Christ in you and for you and with you, you put on sober thinking and self-control, you will be sanctified. 
And again, no one is claiming that this is easy stuff to do, but God helping us and us helping one another, this is possible. Now, Peter tags on something at the end of verse seven that I found quite interesting, had me thinking a lot this week. He said, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded, but he says this, for the sake of your prayers, well, then that means that there are at least three things that will hinder our prayers. The first one is being intoxicated in your minds. And look, there's a lot of things that you can be intoxicated in your mind with. It doesn't just have to be alcohol or drugs. You can be intoxicated in your mind with anger. You can be intoxicated in your mind with lust. You can be intoxicated in your mind with greed. There are many things that will intoxicate the mind of a person. But a sober-minded person is one who looks to Jesus in the fruits of his spirit. The second thing that will hinder your prayers is being selfish and uncontrolled in your actions. It's just gonna hinder you. And the third thing is not having an urgency, an expectation of the soon return of Jesus. And look, I I heard this from one commentator. You know, a lot of people get really interested in the second coming of Jesus, really into the prophecy. You know, you got it all figured out. You're like, I got the Ezekiel, I got the Daniel, I got all of this, like really into the eschatology. You've got it all laid out. Do you know what eschatology ought to lead us toward? Prayer. If you can just backwards and forwards explain the end time plan of God in, in this age, but, but it doesn't lead you to your knees in prayer for the lost, I, I, I think there might be something missing. And so these things, being heavenly minded, being others minded, being sober minded, are going to cause us to be people of prayer, and it's also gonna cause that our prayers will be powerful. Think about that. If you're heavenly-minded, if you're others-minded, and you're sober-minded, that means that you are thinking about God's will, and therefore, you will know how to pray, you will know what to pray, you'll know when to pray, and you will see the fruitful and effective prayers of righteousness just going up to heaven and sending down blessing because you are in God's will. And I, I, I have to imagine that Peter, as he's talking about that, remembers those words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said to Peter, watch and pray. Watch and pray. He came and found him sleeping Come again, Peter, why are you sleeping? Watch and pray. Comes again, finds him sleeping. Watch and pray. Uh, That is like literally, that is like a lot of times the church. Church, wake up. Church, wake up. Watch and pray. Peter also learned that he could not do that according to his own strength. Jesus said there to Peter when he was sleeping, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to learn what that means. We need to understand that God has supplied us with his Holy Spirit 
in order that we wouldn't rest upon our own strength, that we would rest upon the grace of God that he supplies in order that we would be people of prayer in these last days. Amen? Amen. Verse eight says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all means that this is like the highest importance of what Peter is saying. And what could be of higher importance in God's kingdom than love? Do you know that when we go to heaven, when we are in his eternal kingdom, there's no more faith. There's no more hope. Because we have what we've had faith and we've received what we've hoped for. But in God's eternal kingdom, there will be love. Love will remain. Therefore, love is to remain among us even now. Jesus said, how will the world be able to pick out the fact that you are his disciples? by our love for one another. You know, if, if we're gonna spend eternity together, and if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you believe he died on a cross for your sins and he rose from the dead in order to give you resurrection life, you're gonna be in heaven. And anyone who believes that good news of Jesus, the gospel, will be in heaven. And this is, this is a room full of a lot of people you're gonna be in heaven with. And so if you're going to be spending all of eternity with these people in this room, we should probably get used to loving one another now. I get practicing, <laughs> right? But we know now that the issue is, is yeah, 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 we'll love all these people in heaven because in heaven there's no more sin. And what hinders us a lot of times from being able to love each other the way Christ would want us to love is because we sin against each other, which means that this instruction in verse eight is very important for us to understand if we're to love one another because we're to keep loving one another, which means that it's an active effort. We are to love earnestly, and we've studied that word earnestly before. It means to be stretched out, stretched out to the limits in every direction. And a lot of times what happens is when we get hurt by someone, we pull back, you know? It's why when our hand, if someone gets too close to you, you're like, whoa, 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 and you back up. And a lot of times we do that in the church, whoa, 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 we back up. Whereas we are called to stretch out toward one another, to love one another earnestly as God has loved us. Love is to be the overcoat of the wardrobe, the completion of the outfit, because Jesus has loved us in such a way that he has draped us in his righteousness. How has Jesus loved us, church? He gave himself for us. It's the agape love of Jesus Christ that we've received and that we're to give to others. Jesus died once and for all for sin, right? Amen? We've learned that. That's a lot of sin. That's a lot of sin to cover over. That's a multitude of sin. And that's exactly what verse 8 tells us, that love covers a multitude of sin. And that's true for what Jesus has done for us, but that must be true for what we do for one another. Peter's instructing not the covering of sin that Jesus does for us, but the covering of sin that we do one for another in love, in community. And we could spend all morning talking about how love covers a multitude of sins, but one of the simplest meanings of this idea 
is that we don't go around trying to expose each other's sins, but we cover over. See, that word cover has the idea of placing a roof over someone to protect them. Uh, Love gives a protective covering from shame and condemnation. (laughs) There's just, you've maybe met them, hopefully you're not one of them. If you are, I think hopefully this is challenging you right now, but there's some people who feel that their sole purpose in the Christian life is to make everyone else aware of their sin. And, and to make their sin known to others. Um, look guys, we have enough of a threat of defeat from the world, the flesh, and the devil that we don't need Christians going around casting guilt and shame on one another. When we come together as a church, we are to love one another unconditionally, knowing that we are all flawed Every last one of us, I am flawed, yes, even you. (laughs) Therefore, we let love cover over a multitude of sins. We believe the best of people. We highlight people in their identity in Christ above highlighting their faults. It doesn't mean that we never preach again about sin. Look at, if you've been here the last two weeks. But it means that when there's repentance, then there's grace. When there's a request for forgiveness, it's granted. How often? 70 times seven. Keep on going. And it means that we're not so easily offended and we don't break fellowship over petty offenses. We love each other and we forgive each other. Uh, Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. So if you're aware of the, your own multitudes of sins that have been covered, then most certainly you can cover over the multitude of sins of others. And so, as I say all of this, I, I'm aware of where there might be a misunderstanding. I'm aware that when I say cover over sin, you might be thinking, what, are we just supposed to sweep things under the rug? And if there's injustices and hurts and wounds that we just sort of just cover it over and hide it. Look, there comes times in the church where sin must be exposed. But the way that God operates with us is that he is so patient with us. He is so long-suffering with us, waiting and waiting and waiting that we would just bring our sin to him. But there comes a moment of this ongoing, continual unrepentance where sin has to be exposed. And sin has to be exposed, especially when there is no repentance in the offender and when the offended has deep wounds. You know what kind of sins I'm talking about. There are major offenses in the church and there are minor offenses. We're talking about the minor offenses which happen all the time in the body of Christ. We are to love one another and we are to give a covering over each other. That's how we're to live out. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. I would really hope that you would be able to forgive me of my sins. I really do. I really want to be a pastor that would just say, no, no, that's not who you are. You're in Christ. You're forgiven. 
and that there would be such a safety and such a comfort and such a love here, knowing that we again are washed in the blood of Jesus. Verse nine then says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter was writing to Christians that gathered primarily in people's homes. And, you know, we like this church to feel like a home. Do you feel home, at home here? I really hope you do. This is, this, is, uh, this is a home, though, where we have real talk. <laughs> you know, we really address the real issues spiritually in our lives. But this, this needs to be a home. And home is comfortable. Home is safe. Home is a place where you belong. Home is a place where you become where you grow up um, and, and we want this place to be a home which is why we give a, a concerted effort it's why we have a hospitality team and we set the table if you will for you to come for you to be here it's why you get greeted at the doors because the church yes we scatter about but when we gather in this we want this place to be like home but, but we don't stay here, and you guys are out in the world and out in your homes all through the week, and so we need to be living as Christians. We need to be living at the church, not just here on Sundays as the church, but out in the world as the church. And, and part of that is having hospitality. And hospitality is um, an amazing thing. I love this one book. I think I like the title way more than the book itself. The title is, The Gospel Comes with a House Key beautiful. And I really think that hospitality in some ways has been diminished in our culture. Um, you know, the last two years hasn't helped with that. But there's something about having people in your home. There's something about where you share a meal and, you know, some good, long conversation. It's an, it's an environment for the gospel. It's an environment for you to become known by one another. Even one of the qualifications of a pastor is that they must be hospitable. And my wife and I, we endeavor that our home would be a place where people can come and people can be known within our homes. So as believers, we're called to show hospitality in some way, in some measure toward one another. And some are gifted at this, you know, like Kim Esparza. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, she is, right? And, and Robin Heffernan. And, you know, Katie, like, there's this hospitality that is just beautiful, and when you see it on display, it's like, yes, this is amazing. But all, in some measure, all of us are called to be hospitable. And I like what Peter says, show hospitality without grumbling. That word grumbling is an onomatopoetic word. It's, it's the word in, in Greek, gugosmos. Gugosmos, <laughs> right? Even grumbling in English is a is grumble, Right? It's, and when we show hospitality and people come into our home, it can be unpredictable, can it not? Someone spills something on your couch. It's like, <laughs> you know? Someone might stay longer than you hoped that they would. I think it was Benjamin Franklin says, there are two things that smell after three days, fish and guests. <laughs> Proverbs 14, 14 says this, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, <laughs> but abundant crops come by strength of the oxen. Look, you can keep a clean house, and I love a clean house, but, but you can keep a clean house by never having anyone in it, but then you have an empty home and very little depth of relationship. Hospitality is going to impact your normal. 
You know, a while ago, we painted and did the cafe of our church because it's one of the first entry points into this building. And um, we decided on the color, uh, Kim Esparza and I, and it, uh, we decided white because white is bright, it's inviting. When you come in, get your coffee, and you just feel good and you're happy, right? We think about this stuff. But I remember the first week after it was freshly painted white, it was so beautiful, and I was going around with a magic eraser, just like, oh my gosh, no. Wiping it there. It, it, people who know me know me, right? Um, I would see a coffee drip down the wall, and be like, oh my goodness. And, 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 oh man, Kim, Kim, listen, shoe print on the wall. Oh my goodness, who puts shoes on white walls? <laughs> shoes are for the floors, who puts their shoes on walls? And I remember cleaning the shoe mark, I think, off the wall and just kind of grumbling a little bit. And I, I caught myself grumbling. And, I, and the, Lord, the Lord spoke to me, he says, you know, Daniel, you can, you can have beautiful, clean white walls or you can have people come into my church. And so now, you know, when I see the dirt around the corners of the walls, I think that's children running through the halls, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I see, you know, when I see a coffee drip down the wall, I just think, you know, that is one more conversation before or after church where people are being ministered to. I still don't get the shoe print on the wall, but just saying. And you know, what, uh, you know what else covers the multitude of sins? Paint. Just, we'll, we repaint, we'll repaint at some point. So use this building like it's your home, amen? Hospitality in our homes, in our church is beautiful. Uh, verse 10, let's look at this as we wrap it up. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You know, I hope you understand this. Every single Christian has at least one spiritual gift. It was given to you by the Holy Spirit when you believed and it was given for a purpose. Do you know what that purpose is? To use it. To use it. The Holy Spirit gave you one gift, at least one, maybe more, so that you would use it in the service of the body of Christ as good stewards. And we understand to be a steward is that um, it's something that we've received and that we manage. Something has been given, and so you want to be a good steward of it, which means that if the Holy Spirit's giving you a gift, you need to use it. You need to steward it, which means you don't bury it. You don't hide it. You use it in the circulation of the church. And when we do that, we display the varied grace of God. That word varied is, in some translation, manifold. It speaks of the multifaceted glory and grace of God, that God's grace is like a brilliant diamond, and you are just one cut, one edge of that diamond of God's varied grace. So this means that we have all different parts to play in this church, and that we're not all the same. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Some of you wouldn't even dare be up here to speak. But whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so Peter kind of gives two categories of spiritual gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. 
We're going to be talking about spiritual gifts the third week of our series on the Holy Spirit on Wednesday nights. Plug, be here, be here. (laughs) It's important. Four weeks in July on Wednesday nights for dinner and great teaching. But it says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There are speaking gifts. There's the gift of teaching, encouragement, evangelism, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. There are serving gifts, which are often the behind the scenes things. It's mercy, generosity, hospitality, administration. But all gifts are to be used understanding that God is the source and this is where it gets used. And so we want to use our gifts. CalvaryPalaceVerdes.com slash serving. CalvaryPalaceVerdes.com slash serving. There's a form that you can fill out and it'll ask you how long you've been coming to this church. How do you want to be used in this church? Is there a place you want to serve? And there's a bunch of things that you can check the boxes and say, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in this. And maybe you know your spiritual gift. Use it. Maybe you don't know it. Just be here. Serve. Find out what it is. We all have one spiritual gift, and it's beautiful. You know, I have a gift, and it's a speaking gift. It's a gift of teaching. But it's interesting because this has to be a supernatural gift of God from his grace. Because, you know, I grew up with a speech impediment. <laughs> and maybe you hear, when I start my sermons sometimes, I say a lot of ums, you know, you know, in like the first minute or two. And then mostly goes away, mostly. But as a kid, I said um and like between like every word. And it's just a Holy Spirit gift. <laughs> Last thing I would have ever thought I would be doing would be speaking on a weekly basis God's word. But as I understand, as I speak, I am one who speaks oracles of God. I speak the promises of God in the power of the Holy Spirit because he's given me a gift. And so as we wrap it all up, this is what we've learned today. We've covered a lot of ground. So let me remind you what we've heard today. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming soon. And so we are to live with expectation of his coming. We're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's one of the best ways that you can be ready for Jesus to come back at any moment. Above all, we're to love one another, even in our faults. And as we love one another in this church, we're to use our God-given gifts And this all brings glory to Jesus, that in everything, he is glorified through our faithfulness, through our our faithfulness and fruitfulness, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray over this church. Lord, I thank you for the gifts that have been supplied here and for the grace that has been lavished here. I pray that as we um, go out today, Lord, we'd use those gifts. We'd use it before the service and after the service. We'd use it at first Sunday. We'd use it at VBS. Wherever it is that you would call us into service at this church, God, we would do it uh, as a way to display the manifold grace of God. 
Thank you for this church, Lord. Continue to wash us by your blood. Continue to, um, continue to make all things new, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.